a bhikkhu is described as one who sees danger in samsara. And therefore is one seeking liberation, freedom from the danger. When we consider this, we uh, maybe look at the world and the nature of human existence, we can see that it's bound up with dukkha, suffering from beginning to end. Anybody born into the world, human or animal, has to compete with other beings just to survive. Whether we're born in a wealthy country or a poor country, the nature of our existence on this planet is bound up with struggle to find the necessities of life, to survive. The obvious suffering is in those places where there's poverty and people literally don't have enough to eat, don't have medicine for when they're sick. A huge number of people live like that in the world, literally, literally just struggling to find a day's food. But even in the more well-off areas, we still have to compete as human beings. We perhaps have developed some systems that express a certain level of compassion. So we have welfare systems that provide for the sick, the poor, the needy. But even those involve some competition, some struggle. And for most people we're caught up with the urgency of finding money to get the things we need to live. Even before we earn money in education, we're competing with others for our education. The nature of the world is a struggle, it's dukkha in that sense. For us as bhikkhus, we come into the sangha, take a bold step to stop competing, uh, to earn money and wealth. But even as bhikkhus, we have a certain struggle, a certain need to fit in with society in a sense. We have a bowl and we have our robes, we have the Vinaya training. We still have to take our bowl to go out and receive arms. There's no one in the world who just sits there and it all comes to them. There's a certain struggle even in the most easy-going life or the most simple life. But as bhikkhus, we do develop 
a sense of <clears throat> renunciation and learning to live with simplicity, fewness of wishes. When the Buddha talked about the Saleka Dhamma, the Dhamma that uproots defilement, began with uh, qualities, Abhichata and Santuti, a fewness of wishes and contentment is the beginning of the path for uprooting defilement and attachment to this world and to samsara. And this comes at every level of the practice, just developing right view. There's because it's correct for us to develop the qualities of fewness of wishes and contentment. So on the level of wisdom, sila, and in supporting the development of samadhi, meditation. It's a necessary, these are necessary qualities to help quieten the mind and turn back its conditioning, past conditioning to want to always accumulate, possess things, get things. When we practice like this, fewness of wishes, contentment, developing these qualities, it makes the bhikkhu life easy, comfortable, because we generally have enough in terms of requisites and support, and we develop that contentment that we're not always seeking more or better and the mind settles down quickly and can turn to Dhamma. It's freer, clearer. When we turn to the Dhamma, we also start to appreciate the important things in life. And we appreciate that we do depend on others for our existence as bhikkhus. So one naturally develops sense of gratitude, appreciation, kindness, compassion directed towards the laity. Appreciation that they are still having to struggle, compete, get tired, get stressed, earning a living and then they're willing to share some of the extra with us in order that we can live and pursue our practice. So as we do quieten down, we become appreciative of that. We appreciate what a rare opportunity it is to practice Dhamma, to be able to live like this in the world, where we minimize our involvement with the struggles of existence for the basic necessities and things we need. We only have to do the most minor, perform the most minor duties and activities to get the requisites we need. There's a very rare chance to live in this world in this way. And we appreciate those who allow it to happen. And the more we practice Dhamma and the mind sees the value of Dhamma then also we appreciate those who have given us this chance in other ways, say like parents, teachers. Often in life human beings get caught up with memories and preferences around parents what they did or didn't do, how good or not good they were. But when you come to practice Dhamma and you realize what a rare opportunity and what a precious thing Dhamma is, then whatever 
one's background with parents, the fact that they gave birth to us, which allowed us to be here at this time when there is Dhamma available, the teaching in the Sasana is available, is a great blessing, a very rare thing. The Buddha said those people who are Pupagari Chana, those who have helped us in the past, and particularly parents, are rare, invaluable, and blessings, they're auspicious. And just giving birth to us has already given us this chance to practice Dhamma. Whatever came after the ups and downs, goods and bads of family life, say before we were bhikkhus, it doesn't matter. We become aware of the invaluable debt to our parents. And as we incline towards Dhamma, we see the only way to repay that debt is developing Magapala, the Arya Magapala, and the fruits of that. Similarly with teachers, no teachers. Then there's no Dhamma, no training, no monasteries, no monastic form, Vinaya. No Dhamma teaching, no leadership guidance in how to practice for Magapala. So again, sometimes we get caught up into the judgments about teachers as, in, as we do with parents. We like them, don't like them, right and wrong, good and bad. But as one inclines to Dhamma, the overwhelming or overriding awareness is that of the value of teachers to have both given us the opportunity to practice the security, the protection, and then the advice, the guidance, how to practice the leadership, the example. And again, the only way to really repay the debt to teachers is to p pursue the practice, perfect the path, and realize true insight, true wisdom, and true liberation. Vimuti Jnana Dasana is the end of the Salaika Dhammas. The Buddha talked about the ten Salaika Dhammas for uprooting defilement. The end is Vimuti Jnana Dasana, right knowledge and right vision. It leads to liberation as its result. That's how we repay the Buddha and the teachers. So as we practice this path of uprooting defilement, at every stage, you know, we're developing right view and learning to reflect, to bring the mind in line with truth, in line with Dhamma, more and more. The one who practices, they say, inclines towards Dhamma, or bends, the mind bends towards Dhamma, like a flower in the summer blooms the flower opens but then it turns towards the direction of the sun because the Dhamma is what gives us peace and wisdom so we use wisdom at the beginning of our practice as we become more aware of what is what of truth and through the middle and at the end of the practice as we practice sila, we're using wisdom. We're reflecting on, on how we behave, what our duties are, responsibilities are in our life as bhikkhus, how we behave, how we live with others in the community, how we relate to the laity. We use wise reflection all the time 
and then mindfulness and restraint and these qualities of contentment, fewness of wishes, these are all factors giving rise to sila as, as a factor of the path, as a way of training body, speech and mind to calm down and stop feeding the kalesas, feeding the hindrances, so that it allows the mind to be more peaceful for the development of meditation. As we come to meditate, we can see much of the mental suffering that we have, often based around other people, ourselves and other people, perceptions of self, ourself, other people. And so we can reflect on this, we get right down to the heart of the Dhamma, what is the cause of suffering? It's clinging to the five khandhas, the upadana khandhas, or clinging to a sense of self in these khandhas, these khandhas as self. Whether it's the form, the physical form, feelings, perceptions, thought formations or sense consciousness, lump it all together and becomes a self, a person. And much of our mental activity and perceptions, memories, are based around sense of self, our self, other people's self. As we're learning to reflect with wisdom on this, on our own body and mind, on these candors, learning to look at them, examine them with wisdom to see the truth of them. And much of that, especially in the beginning, is just dealing with the sense of self, how it manifests. As we meditate here, many times you'll see how thoughts turn to thoughts about myself, say, oneself, looking at oneself in different ways, different views we have about self, perceptions of self, or else other selves. We like certain people, we're attracted particularly to the opposite sex. We have attraction sometimes, in more subtle ways, just attracted to certain people we like, certain people have friends in certain people. Or we like ourselves, we're happy about ourselves. And then other times, dislike, aversion for ourselves or for other people. Much of our mental activity is taken up with it's thinking about ourselves or other people as selves, as people, fixed entities. I remember one of Ajahn Chah's teachings about this. He said the last teaching his teacher, Lumpur Ginnery, gave him as he left him before he went off to begin what Papong was. Be careful in your meditation. Anybody you think of will bring you harm. Which can be seen on a very sort of mundane level, conventional level, say the level of sila, just thinking about other people with likes and dislikes can lead on to all kinds of attachments and problems. Or it can be seen on a very refined level, just the sense of self and the perception of self in ourselves and other people. We can see as we meditate, this is a huge issue which we're dealing with every day, every time we meditate. And there's different ways to deal with it. Say so one way, Long Taboa talks about how to deal with 
thoughts about other people in order to free the mind up, quieten the mind. He said, just reflect on everybody else as if they were your relative. So that's people you like, people you dislike, male, female, young, old. Bring up the perception as if they're relative so that you can just think of them with an ease, ease of mind and then just let go. It doesn't mean to say you like everybody or dislike everybody, but you can, if somebody is a relative, you generally can be at peace with them, at ease with them in your mind. A very simple reflection as we meditate. If it's a man, it could be a father, a brother, a son, nephew, cousin. If it's a lady, then it could be a mother, a wife, sister, Probably not a wife, sister, a daughter, cousin, niece. Just viewing people as relatives and then letting go. Very simple reflection, but often that's not enough. So we have to use wisdom to start looking at the perceptions of people that build up, the perceptions we have of ourselves and the perception of others based on these five candors, but often missing the reality and getting stuck into fixed views about people, selves, us, them, me, you. All reflections of Sakaya Ditti and taking the candors as a self, a fixed self, believing in viewing candors as self. Often we need to do this, we need to exercise our wisdom to start examining our thought formations because they're so bothersome. You might call this uh, training in wisdom to develop samadhi. But there'll be those times when we can't just turn to the meditation object and let go of all our thoughts. The mind keeps coming back to memories and then thoughts, preferences based on those memories and with feelings as well we have emotional reactions and sometimes we have to use just straight vipassana techniques examine our own thought formations and perceptions and break them down analyze them in order to help disperse them experience some peace of mind or that emptiness of mind where we do let go of this sense of self in us and in others so we can use the reflection on the five candors in this way. You say you have attraction arise for somebody. The traditional way is to run through the 32 parts of the body to see where that attraction is based and just how correct it is to be attracted to another being, the perception of another person. So we have attraction for a certain image, a memory of a person we've seen, whether in the near time frame or someone from the long past. What is it that you're attracted to? Is it the hair, the head, hair of the body, the skin, the nails, teeth, the internal organs, the blood, the phlegm, the bones, the flesh, and so on? which bit is the attractive bit or the reflection Ajahn Chah gave to the novice who was kept missing his girlfriend and asked to write a letter to her he said yes you can but get her to put some excrement in the reply and send it to you so you can sniff it every day you know, that's the technique of Vipassana examining the Rupa Kanda of that form that we've become infatuated or attracted to. It's simply asking questions, do you love the excrement of that person? Are you attracted to excrement? Are you attracted to, if it's the hair, in what part of the hair are we attracted to? Maybe we are attracted to the look of somebody's hair, but break it down. One single hair, is it attractive? The root of the hair as it grows out of the skin, the hair follicle, is it attractive? 
the hair after a few days without washing and becomes greasy and smelly, is it attractive? If it's the skin, you use your mind like a microscope and look at the skin. Is, is it the skin, each segment of skin that is attractive? Is it the dead skin on the surface that's attractive? You look at skin under the microscope, it becomes very rough, very, very, not so attractive. This is using wisdom just to break down some of the basic sense of self, and perceptions of self, sense of me and you, us and them, of being a person. Which bit is attractive? going through the body parts. Or you could go through the other kandas. If you're attracted to someone, are you attracted to their weight in a kanda? Do you get attracted to their dukkha weight in a kanda? The dukkha weight in a person experiences. Is that attractive, desirable? Any physical or mental pain they're experiencing? the nature of the Vaitanakanda to be constantly changing between pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasure and pain. Is that attractive, desirable? The instability of it, the uncertainty of it, is that desirable and attractive? If it's your own Vaitanakanda, why why do we make so much out of the Vaitanakanda when it's so un certain, unpredictable. Why do we call it our feeling, my feeling? Even the words we give to this weight in the candor, start to examine them, how they feed the thought formations. You know, the perception is based partly just on words. We remember a word, we say pain. So you have, you're meditating, you have pain in your back. And the mind is aware of that. We can go right to that pain and examine it. Examine the weight in Akanda at that point. Is it, is it the bone? Is it the flesh, the blood? These are not the pain. They know nothing of pain. Pain is an experience which is arising. But who calls it pain? Who calls it dukkha? Who calls it painful feeling? Where does that word come from? We start to examine like this and bring the mind just to stillness. You can even get to the point where there's no words. It's just knowing that experience, but letting go. Seeing the pain is one thing, knowing that experience but not adding anything else on, not attaching to it, not labeling it, naming anything, not feeding any mental proliferation about it, but just knowing it as that, just what it is. The Sanyakanda, if you're Attracted to somebody, is it the sanyakanda of that person you're attracted to? Sanya is very uncertain. Memories change. We lose memory. We have uncertainty about memories. Two people, you always see this in a courtroom when you have witnesses discussing a case that happened three years ago or five years ago. One person remembers it one way, another remembers it another way. Very uncertain, unreliable. So if you have attraction for somebody, is it their sanyakanda you're attracted to? All that uncertainty, unreliability. Some of that sanya is vipalasa, it's prejudice. Their sanya is remembering things as good and bad, right and wrong sometimes correctly and sometimes just with defilement. Defiled memory, 
is that attractive? Is that what you're attracted to in that person? The delusions of that person? Obviously, the goodness of a person can be very attractive and we can appreciate that. But here we're just looking at the nature of a kanda to be an icha dukkha anatta, a conditioned phenomena that very unstable, that is dukkha in its essence, unreliable, changing all the time, rising and passing away all the time. Is that kanda something to really be attracted to? fixated about in the mind? Is it something to believe in as a reality, something that is changing from moment to moment? Vaitana kanda, sanya kanda, sankhara kanda, vinyana kanda, rising and passing away every moment. Is that something to be attracted to? Is that something to be fixated on? on? think a lot about, desire, want. This is the way we start to ask questions and look at truth in our mind. Whether it's near or far, internal, meaning our own candors, external, somebody else's candors, inferior, superior, coarse, refined, And we can appreciate candors for what they are, but we don't have to attract, be attracted and attached to them. You know, if somebody has a very good memory, they can remember many things. They can chant the Patimoka, or they can remember all the Dhamma, or lay people who can remember great things, have a great capacity to remember and know many things and then have a very refined memory, know very great refined aspects of life. We can appreciate that, but still it's just the quality of arising, passing away, sanya and icha. As we get older, even the most refined memory, ability to remember, and the most refined memories that people have, they degenerate, they forget. Similarly with Sankara Kanda, arises, passes away every moment, chopping and changing, different emotional states, pleasure, pain of the mind, wholesome, unwholesome. Do we get attracted to that quality, the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of the Sankara Kanda in somebody, in ourselves, in somebody else. Is that worth being attracted to? If you find yourself attracted to someone, are you attracted to their mental formations rooted in greed? Their mental formations rooted in anger, rooted in delusion? all the suffering of that. Is that attractive, desirable? Sense consciousness, arising, passing away. In itself it's just neutral, isn't it? It's just seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Concepts arising in the mind. Just neutral functions of nature functions of reality. Have you been very attached to someone, liking someone, wanting someone, infatuated with someone? Are you infatuated with their ability to see and the seeing consciousness that arises and passes away all the time? Are you infatuated with their ability to hear the hearing of that person? the uncertainty of it. We see, we hear. The very sense bases that provide all this sense contact and sense consciousness, very uncertain as we age, we lose our sight, lose our hearing. 
this is one way of just examining our own perception and attachment to candors and seeing them as self and that delusion of self with attraction for another person. Similarly with aversion for another person. If you have aversion for somebody, you think about them and aversion arises. Irritation, frustration, dislike, hatred, blind rage, whatever. Is it the hair on the head that you hate? Is it the hair on the arms, under the armpits that you hate? Is it the skin that you hate, dislike? Are you irritated with their blood? Are you irritated with their toenails? Are you irritated with their liver and their kidney? If you have self-aversion, unhappy with yourself, you feel depressed, sad, lonely, well, is it the heart that is depressed, sad, lonely, or that you're angry with? Are you angry with your liver, your kidney? You're angry with your hip bone, and so on. You can go through the 32 parts of the body and see where is the basis for this aversion that you have for yourself or somebody else. Examine it, examine what is that emotion based on. Is there a real self there to be averse to? Is it the weight in the candor of that person? yourself or somebody else that you're averse to. If you dislike somebody, whatever they've said or done, is it their feelings of sukhawaitana that you're averse to? The most refined sukhawaitana that person experiences, are you averse to that? Is that really the basis for aversion? Are you averse to their neutral upekawaitana? Are you averse to their dukkha waitana, the pain that that person feels physically, mentally? Are you averse to that? Is that a self? Is that anything substantial to be averse to? Is it impermanent, something that just rises and passes away according to its function, according to nature? Are you averse to the perception of that person, the memory, the ability to perceive, the ability to remember things? Is that the basis for your aversion? The rising and passing away of their sanyakanda, is that what you're averse to, if you're averse to a person, to yourself, to another person? Are you averse to their thought formations, arising and passing away from moment to moment? Are you averse to the sense consciousness of that person? Are you averse to them seeing or hearing, tasting, touching, smelling? It's examining in this way, thoroughly, examining well, examining with mindfulness and clear comprehension directed to one's own views and perceptions that we can start to unravel this tangled mass of candors that we call a self, that we see in us and we see in others. And we can do this as an exercise, even before we have attained much peace of mind, to help establish right view and help break up some of the mental activity that feeds the hindrances our greed, our aversion, our fear, anxiety, insecurity, our worries, our doubt, and so on. You examine the five candles in yourself and others thoroughly in this way, then doubt fades away. You get to know exactly what is what. This body, what it's like, what its nature is, what to expect from it, what not to expect from it from any angle. You see it in yourself, then you'll see it in other person. 
you know that your own rupa kanda is a nietzsche dukkha anatta, then you'll know that another person's is a nietzsche dukkha anatta. You know that your own sanya kanda is a nietzsche dukkha anatta. You'll know that any person, anyone else in this world, their sanya kanda is a nietzsche dukkha anatta. This is the kind of knowledge and insight that this exercise brings us. In the beginning, this will bring the mind to peace temporarily, the peace of samadhi. It just helps us to clear away the hindrances and the food of the hindrances. It allows the mind to settle down with the breath, with buddho. So we might experience some temporary peace of mind, a temporary liberation from the defilements, or temporary state of emptiness, emptiness of this sense of self that we keep building up in ourselves, in other people, in our perceptions and views of them. But as we experience those periods of emptiness, of peace of mind, of samadhi, then we can also build on them to refine this investigation of the candors. It's the foundation of the peace of mind that allows us to investigate more fluently, more carefully, because there's more composure, more restraint, more mindfulness present. Then we can sustain this investigation and look more deeply, more see more clearly. And this is the way the path develops using both wisdom and samadhi supporting each other. Wisdom leading into samadhi, samadhi being the foundation for wisdom. But the technique we have to learn right from the beginning. It's not like we leave the reflection, the vipassana to some later stage of the practice. We're learning this from the beginning. We're training in this, how to examine our experience using the wisdom that the Buddha and our teachers gave us. They're like giving us all kinds of shortcuts so that we don't have to just struggle around thinking about it. What might be what? Is it? Well, look at these candors individually. Are they impermanent or permanent? Are they stable and secure, peaceful, or are they unstable? Are they stressful and suffering? Are they some kind of lasting, substantial self, or are they not? We learn train ourselves to start confronting our own views and perceptions that we keep holding on to and keep feeding our own disturbed and unpeaceful states of mind. We start looking at them more deeply. And as mindfulness improves, then that reflection becomes much more profound, goes deeper. When we begin the practice, there may be just a little bit of pain is already disturbing and we can't reflect or examine it very well. All we can maybe do is maybe go on, examine the memory of that pain, but pain is so intense an experience. Once it's gone, it's gone. It's difficult to look at it once it's gone. But as we keep meditating in these various qualities of the Dhamma, and our effort and our patience come up, then we can start to look at pain, say, in more detail. Look at it as the weight in a kanda, look at it as dukkha, look at it without a sense of self, without a label, without a lot of mental proliferation. We just start to get to know painful feeling as just that much, seeing feeling in feeling. External from the sense contacts, internal, just coming up from the body internally. As the mind quietens down, we start to also see some, it reveals many things we didn't know before. Most of us probably realize how, how much dukkha is associated with sense contact if you live in the monastery where it's quite peaceful and there's a minimum sense contact 
we're secluded from much of the world's sense contact. And then you go out into town, suddenly there's more people, more activity, sense stimulation, sense data coming our way. There's TV screens, computer screens, advertising, there's vehicles and people everywhere. We pick up information, we talk to people and absorb information and so on. After a while you can see staying in the city or in the town, say in a layperson's house or a family's house, using this reflection, examining the, the vinyana kanda, you see the nature of sense contact is actually a little bit painful. The more we have, the more stressful we feel, the more oppressed we feel by sense contact. It's oppressive, so physically, mentally we start to feel drained, tired. Most monks come back to the monastery, they always say they feel tired. It's because of all that sense contact that we've had to deal with to maintain our mindfulness and wisdom within that. It's quite challenging. But you contemplate it to see the nature of sense contact. Sense consciousness is dukkha. The Buddha simile, what is it? The simile of the cow skinned. Every little blowing, uh, every little gust of wind, every little speck of dust on a, the body of, with its skin peeled is like torture. So in essence, it's the nature of our sense contact and the sense consciousness that's arising. It's torturing us all the time agitating the mind and is conditioning the arising of dukkha in different ways. Even the sukha waitana that comes is conditioning more dukkha as we attach to it, crave for it. So just sense contact alone is already dukkha. We can see it's not really a self, is it? We don't have much control over sense contact, sense consciousness. It's constantly bombarded, especially when you're in the city. All that seeing is just seeing, but there's a lot of it, a lot of sense data, so it becomes painful, but it's just seeing. There's no self in all of that. So then we get back to the roots of our existence as human beings. And you have a body, you have senses. They bring you dukkha. How much dukkha depends on our karma. It's all vibhaka karma, all the sense contact we're having, pleasant, unpleasant, how much of it, how little of it. That's our vibhaka karma. So actually coming to live in the forest is a very wise decision because you're minimizing your vibhaka karma, there's less unpleasant sense contact perhaps in many occasions and there's less cause for craving and attachment to arise. So although at first takes some getting used to, but after a while living in the forest is very peaceful. And that's the good karma, the wholesome karma that arises from renunciation. If you live in the centre of the city and constantly stimulated, then after a while you get completely overwhelmed by it and it's a cause for stress and suffering. That's the vibhaka karma of living in the centre of a city. The good and the bad you've done, what comes your way, the sense contact we receive, the, the, the sound we receive from other people in terms of words, the opinions and views, the judgments, the praise and criticism of others, this is all our vibhaka karma and it comes to us as sense contact, as sound, doesn't it? Or if it's written down, it's visual. Pleasant sounds, unpleasant sounds, pleasant smells, unpleasant smells, pleasant tastes, unpleasant tastes, this is all of our vibhaka karma. But wherever you live in the world you can't avoid sense contact, sense consciousness arising, passing away all the time and the weariness of that once you establish mindfulness and reflect on it it's, it's tiresome 
And this is the insight that comes in a mind weary of the candors of having a body, attaching to a body with a sense of self, attaching to the Vajana Kanda, attaching to the Sanya, the Sankara, the Vinyana. It's wearisome, tiresome. The reason the mind enters samadhi, seeks the seclusion of samadhi, is because it gets tired of sense contact and all the mental formations and the disturbance and agitation of all that. It wants to settle down and rest in one place. So it enters samadhi. But we have to use both mindfulness and wisdom to get to that point. The wisdom has to see the disadvantages of the hindrances and following them. Then using the samadhi, the state of peace, we uproot the defilements again, seeing the disadvantages, the suffering that comes from greed, anger, delusion. But it's examining these candors and seeing them for what they are that allows this process to take place. And little by little the mind wearies, no longer is intoxicated, infatuated with the candors, our own candors, other people's candors coarse candors, refined candors, superior, inferior, near, far, internal, external, and so on. The mind wearies of that attachment and the belief in them as a self and the delusion of it all. So it starts to step back, experiences more dispassion and detachment. We've all had that experience that sometimes Otherwise we wouldn't be in the robes, we wouldn't have taken the life as a, of a bhikkhu. But it's just not yet sustained, the mind hasn't yet seen clearly enough all the time. So we have to keep developing the practice. And that insight and the liberation that comes from it will deepen. And we'll experience that peace that we all seek, the freedom from attachment to the world, to the candors, to samsara. So I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation tonight.